Praise God. This is Greg. Everyone say hi, Greg. Um, God added Greg and Kristen and their family uh, to our body uh, several months ago. And um, as we have uh, continued to pray, as God builds his church, as Christ builds his church, he builds it with the right stones. Amen. And he brings people that uh, can also come along and help shoulder the burden. And uh, we love Greg and his family. And today's the first time uh, that Greg is going to come and preach the word this morning. And we're really excited about that. Um, we affirm the gift that God has given him as a teacher and as a student of the word. And, uh, and so we're super excited for uh, God to use that gift this morning to bless us all together as a body, and we just want to lay hands on him and pray for him this morning. Would you pray with us? Father, we thank you so much for Greg and uh, bringing he and Kristen and their family to our body. Lord, we thank you for um, the blessing that they are to us as a family. And God, we just uh, pray this morning for him as he opens your word. God, as he begins to uh, deliver for us the things that he has in study, um, diligently sought out this week. God, we know that your word never returns void. And so this morning, God, our faith and our boldness and our confidence is not in a man, though we love Greg. Our confidence is in your word. God, that you are going to deliver the word this morning through your servant. We ask that he would be small, that you would be great, and that today, God, we would hear from your word, that it would go deep into our hearts and it would create the change that you desire it to be so that the fruit of it can be lived out in our lives as we live in the rhythms of confession, repentance, and reconciliation and as you send us off into mission, God. We love you. We thank you this morning for your word and for your teacher. We pray that our ears would be open. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen. God bless Good morning, church. I'm so excited to be here this morning with you guys. It's been a great week of preparation for me, and um, so just ready to get into it this morning and, and share with you what um, God has been putting on my heart and helping me pr prepare from his word. So we're in Ephesians 2. I'm going to be picking up right where um, Mike left off, and uh, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. As usual, we, are, we will be, um, I'll, I'll read through the uh, first 10 verses and uh, practice our regular liturgy. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you all to say, thanks be to God. So Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I invite you all to follow along with me. I did not make that clear. Out loud, please. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, this morning, you know, last week, Mike took us through verses 7 through 9. And what I'm going to be doing this morning is really focusing on verse 8. And in particular, so I'll just read verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is a power-packed verse that needs to be developed a little bit. We didn't want to move on too quickly from this. And in particular, this phrase for by grace you have been saved through faith. Because if we understand that it is God's saving grace that saves us and that the, the means through which God's grace saves us is faith, right? So faith is the means through which God's grace effectively saves us. We need to understand a right understanding of this saving faith. This is what we're going to take a look at. We, we need a right understanding of this saving faith because faith... It's a pretty big word in our culture, is it not? It's, it's highly esteemed. It's, um, there's all kinds of faith. People are excited to have faith in, in whatever, faith in faith. And that's not what this is talking about. If we are saved by grace, and that's applied effectively to us through faith, we must understand what this faith is. So the concept of faith has been muddied. And so what I'll be doing um, most, for the most part this morning is actually clearing away many, many false ideas of what faith is. And then we'll be going in probably next week into uh, more exploring and we'll be able to usher in a fuller understanding of true saving faith and what that is. Um, get the cloudiness out of our minds. And the, and the Word of God has plenty to say about warning us against these false ideas of faith. So we're going to prepare ourselves for that. I have uh, quite a few points to go over as far as what saving faith is not. Okay, the first one I'm going to call presumption. Saving faith is not presumption. Placing an expectation on God that he didn't place on himself. When you hear the word presumption in the context of false faith, you might immediately think of the name it, claimant movement, the prosperity gospel. And you'd be right as they are among the worst offenders and clearest examples of the most extreme forms of this error. But if we leave here and we just are able to say, oh, those guys, that, that, if we can just point our fingers and say, that's error, that's error, but if it's not hitting home and we're not being able to, to see how these errors seep into our own thinking, we need to be able to bring this home and understand how we can easily be guilty of presumption. Because listen, we presume on God Every time we place an expectation on him that he didn't place on himself, he's God. We want something, perhaps something good, a noble desire for God to perform or deliver. We expect this. It could be any issue of healing, safety, finances, provision, even salvation for a loved one. We presume on God when we say, 
I got a word from the Lord, and he wants me to fill in the blank. Or he, wants, he told me he wants you to fill in the blank. You need to go do this. God told me that. Isn't it interesting how often what God told you lines up with exactly what you wanted? Guys, this is so easy to do. And it so often ends in anything from disappointment to total disaster. What happens is we know God is good, and we ask for something good. Good in this case is defined by our desires. So we determine it must be God's will, and we fully expect him to deliver. Well, God is good, and we are not. His ways are higher than our ways, and he has understanding and perspective that we don't. And so we don't actually have the best plan for the most good. Praise God, he does. And he will always work out all things for the most good. We may at times come to understand God's purpose for going against our good desire. But true faith recognizes that God is God and we are not. Our prayers must be informed with this caution against presumption. Do not declare that God will do something he didn't promise to do. Do not declare in faith that God has already determined a matter to be in agreement with you. Here's an example. You ever hear something like this? Let's take an example of a friend who's diagnosed with a terminal illness. God, we thank you and praise you for the healing you have done in our friend's life. because We declare healing in his life right now. And we wait for his body to come into obedience to your command of healing. I could have just ripped that off with some sermon from TBN. I'm sure you've heard this stuff. Guys, that's full-on presumption. That's not the faith and certainty and full assurance that we can count on. That's not the faith we're called to. The faith and certainty and full assurance and confidence in God that we're called to have, this true faith is a faith that doesn't ever put us to shame. It doesn't ever let us down. Listen, by all means, pray for healing. Pray for all kinds of good and right things as we're commanded to. And in true faith, know that God is able. Yes, he is. Do not doubt when you pray. Pray that God would heal. Cry out to him, knowing that he, hears, that he cares for you and truly hears you pleading before him. This pleases him and demonstrates your trusting reliance on him. But then simply trust him. Don't determine God's steps for him and then call that true faith. Perhaps end your prayer with, thy will be done. As a reminder to yourself and a discipline to ultimately trust God when you make your request known to him. Would you like to see some biblical examples of this? Let's do this. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. How often do you hear the teacher tell you to turn to the book of Numbers, right? It's one of the most underrated books of the Bible, I think. It's, it's filled with fascinating stories, and there's so many. And I, I love the lessons here that you learn about God and about man. I'm going to Numbers chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 39. But let me, uh, let me give you a bit of context on what's going on here. You've got the story of the Israelites. They've just been uh, delivered from slavery in Egypt. They've been carried by you know, the Exodus. They've gone through the Exodus. And at this point, they have, um, they're, kind of, they're camped outside the promised land. 
about ready to go in and invade their promised land by God. And so Moses, their commanding officer, he sends in 12 spies. Remember the story. Ten, ten of the spies come back after 40 days. And they, they, they terrify the Israelites with this bad report, this scary report. They said, there was, they said there was men of great height in the land. And for some reason, that scared them. I was trying to figure out what was so scary about tall people. But, but the point is the people rebelled. They go into this full-on uh, hissy fit and just crying out to God about uh, their, their, their fear and terror in the midst of what God had just shown them about his many signs and wonders and what he's done for them. So God's not pleased with that. He hands down this judgment of 40 years in the wilderness, and the, the entire adult generation is going to die off. And those little ones that they were trying to protect from the tall people, they're going to enter the promised land 40 years later. So here's where we pick up in verse 39. Moses has just delivered that judgment of God on them. And here we go. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And when they rose, and they, they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. What's happening here? Oh, we messed up. We're going to try to make things right on our terms, God. Though he had already handed down the judgment to them. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they, if you're following along in the ESVs, what do you see? They presumed. That's what they were doing. We saw that. They presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. How strong is their presumption? The presence of the covenant and their commanding military officer, they leave back at the camp. And they're like, oh, we'll take care of it. We're, we're going to make things right, God, on our terms. I want, you to say that they, I want you to see that they had great faith. This is not a suicide mission that they're on. They would have said they have great faith, and they would have said God was with them. This is a false faith. Look at the result in verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. This is the disaster of presumption. Uh, you don't need to come with me. I'm going to jump over to uh, Deuteronomy 1.41 just uh, real quick because it kind of, uh, it kind of uh, fills in the illustration a little bit tighter here. Where uh, in this passage, Moses is looking back and retelling the, the history of the Israelites, and he's retelling this story that we just read in Numbers. He says, Then you answered me, we have, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. This is the mindset of presumption. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country, I want you to get this, I want you to get this mind picture of presumption right here. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Can you imagine the Israelites just being 
chased down the hill going, we got, we got this one wrong, guys. This, this is the disaster of presumption. All right, come with me to the next one, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 20. This is serious, guys. This, is, this, one's a, this is a weighty matter, and it's far too prevalent in the church today. It says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. There's not too many commands where the penalty is execution. This is one of them. God takes his truth, his word, very seriously. He must guard it because we have to be able to trust it. Charles Spurgeon spoke to this issue in a sermon where he was teaching on the Holy Spirit and the role, the true role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want to read this to you. He says, Take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him, meaning the Holy Spirit. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons, I hope they were insane, who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. There has not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may save them some trouble if I tell them once and for all that I will have none of their stupid messages. Exclamation mark. When my Lord and Master has any message to me, he knows where I am, and he will send it to me direct, not by madcaps. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Spirit. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this, that, and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Spirit by laying their nonsense at his door. Serious words from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He had to deal with it in his day I think it's probably even more prevalent in our day. This mess of trying to push our, our thoughts and our will and our word and saying that this is God's word. We can't fall into that. I, um, I feel like there's a lot I could say on that issue, but I need to move on. Um, Come with me to uh, one, other ish, one other example of um, presumption. This is Romans, Romans chapter 2. So in Numbers, we saw the presumption of, of, uh, of in our behavior. In Deuteronomy, you see the presumption of speaking for God. And in Romans chapter 2, I'm going to go verse 2 through 4. We see the presumption of self-righteousness before God. Romans 2, 
verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's talking about the, up in uh, the end of chapter 1, all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, you've got this comparative judgment and thereby taking away your own weight of guilt. Or do you, what does it say? Presume. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is a presumption that does not produce a penitent heart that is humble before God and realizing that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, and that includes me. This is the presumption of, I thank God I'm not like that tax collector, a sinner. Right? This is not, this is, this is not the faith that we're called to. This is presumption. The next word is credulity. What saving faith is not. Credulity. And I got this word from R.C. Sproul a few years ago as I was listening to something he had to say on faith. And I, I, I tied to that word credulity because I, st- I started to see it. I started to see this, this idea of credulity in the church and, and everywhere. This is being quick to believe something without evidence. Being quick to believe something without evidence. Is this the faith we're called to? To just believe. Just believe. Is faith blind? No. This is, the, uh, this is the Oprah faith. This is the Disney World faith. Just believe. Uh, you can see the fireworks in the night sky. and It says believe. You can see the sparkles. This is this exciting believe. And believe in what? It's like it's not rooted. It's not grounded. Is the study of apologetics an, an exercise in futility? No, it's not. The Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Listen to this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's not fall prey to credulity. Ask questions, study, dig, demand understanding. Don't, don't sit back with your wondering about certain doctrines and not feel like I can get into this word. I can ask questions. I can go to my pastor. I can go to good resources and get answers. I can. Truth is not a, afraid of being questioned and critiqued. It will always stand up. Be like the Bereans who were commended for their lack of credulity, Right? They weren't about to believe Paul until they substantiated what he said. They didn't just believe. Finish this sentence for me. We walk by faith, not by... Do we? What did I just say? Our faith is not blind, but we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do walk by faith, not by sight. But that is not to be confused with blind faith. One of my favorite quotes... I have this plaque in my office. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. That's walking by faith, not by sight. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. 
When I'm walking by faith, I'm letting God determine my steps because my wholehearted trust is in him. So I'm not concerned with where he leads me. I don't know what my life will look like tomorrow in the near future, let alone five, ten years from now. Do I plan for tomorrow? Do I plan for the future? Am I responsible to plan? Yes. But is that with having a certain expectation that my plans will come to pass? Don't put my faith in that. No. Proverbs 19.21 makes this pretty clear. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do I know the purpose, what the purpose of the Lord will be for my future, that he is, what he has laid out for me? No. I walk by faith, not by sight. I walk by trusting him, not trying so hard to tightly control every aspect of my life to ensure that I can see my future. Don't put your trust in your own ability to plan for your future and count on those plans to come through for you. Don't put your faith in your planning. Know that you don't know where God may take you in any particular circumstance. And be at peace with that. It's okay, because you trust God. What about childlike faith? When we call to a childlike faith, is that childish? Is there a difference here? Childlike faith is not childish thinking. It's not credulity. We are called to a childlike faith. We're not called to credulity. Where do we get the idea of childlike faith? It's in Mark 10, 15, where Jesus blesses the little children and says to the crowd, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We must have faith like a child. Little, little children instinctively trust their parents for their care and provision, don't they? That's childlike faith. I mean, what little child would take a, a nice warm bottle of milk from their mother and start to and, and look at a question like, what, what is this you've given me? You know, is this is it, what's the expiration on this? Is this organic? You know, is there toxins in this milk? You know, it's not it, it, you see the total instinctive trust. There's an undoubting, pure childlike trust that a young child has for the care and provision that its mother provides for the child. There's no doubting. There's no questioning. No. Bob, baby's going to take that bottle of milk and start chugging away without a second thought to what's in it, how good it is for them. That's childlike faith. This is the model of childlike faith. We trust and receive Christ without questioning him in a doubtful way. We study the scriptures and we seek out wisdom and knowledge not to see if God is worthy of our trust, but to increasingly see that he is. Compare that pure, childlike, undoubting faith in our Heavenly Father with the immaturity of credulity. Don't confuse childlike faith with childish thinking. 1 Corinthians 14.20 warns us, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. We should seek understanding for our honest, sincere questions. Many of the psalmists did just that, did they not? God, what is going on here? What, where are you in this? What are you doing? But they always infuse that with this extolling of his attributes that, said, I, that says, I trust in you because you are this, you are that, you are my shield, you are my salvation, you are my rock, I trust in you. But at the same time, they're crying out with this, help me in this. That's okay, that's good. We're not doubting him 
That's not the time, that's not the type of question. That's the difference between an honest question and a scoffle, scoffing, doubting. In Mark 9, we read the story of a man whose son was demon-possessed, and Jesus challenges this man to have faith that Jesus is able to help. In verse 9, the man replies, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. This is where we are until our faith is perfected. That's okay. We grow up into a belief that is less and less mixed with doubt, being rooted and established in the faith and the knowledge of Christ. That's credulity. The third point, what saving faith is not, intellectual assent. We see this, merely believing what is true. Merely believing what is true. So you've got to come with me to James chapter 2 for this. Open your Bibles, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? If someone says he has faith, this is a proclaimed faith. This, one, this is one in the visible church. Can that faith save him? Can we all read between the lines here? No. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, sending warm wishes your way, I give you my best. Good vibes. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He's calling out a worthless, useless faith. This is not the saving faith of Ephesians 2.8, which is the means by which God's saving grace saves us and is effectively applied to us. But someone will say, faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19. Oh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Awesome. You've got sound doctrine. Your theology is spot on. Good for you. You know what? Even the demons believe and shudder. They shudder because they know holy God more than we do. But they are not obedient to the truth. They're, they're not obedient to the faith. This is not a faith. They don't have a faith that works itself out, that is submissive to Christ. Sound doctrine will not save us. This is why the modern method of evangelism is so problematic. We tell people God loves them. We might even address the sin issue and their need for God, but we quickly get to the good news and eagerly solicit their response, right? What does the evangelist do? With all heads bowed and all eyes closed, if you'll slip up your hand, when no one's looking, I see that hand, right? And we grant them a certificate of salvation for this. No wonder we've got a whole generation of people ashamed of the gospel. They've been trained to be ashamed of the gospel from the very outset. No one's looking, okay. I'll take Jesus in eternal life as long as no one's looking, real quick. How absurd. 
and how damaging to give so many people a false sense of security when they know nothing of a true saving faith that works, that is obedient to the truth. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your works? No, but it says by your obedience to the truth. That's, that, is the, that is a saving faith. It is obedient to the truth. That's just a descriptive term for true saving faith. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a pure heart. That's what a saving faith enables us to do, and it leads us to do, and it will do in us if it is in us. Intellectual assent. To only acknowledge the truth without walking in the truth is dead faith. It does not save. The fourth point, uh, I grant you, is kind of a catch-all. I'm just going to say idolatry. Faith in an idol of your mind. Any wrong idea or perception of who God really is. This is faith in a God our flesh loves. It always pleases. It never convicts. It never crosses my will. That's because this God is my will. God wants me to be happy, and this would make me happy. So they must go together, right? A sure sign of false faith, any false faith, is that it does not endure. If we boil down true faith and false faith, a sure sign of any and every false faith is that it does not endure. Remember the parable of the sower, the rocky ground? It's in Matthew 13, 20 to 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There's that immediate proclamation of faith with excitement. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he's ashamed of the word. And he immediately falls away, right? Because he has no root. He's not been rooted and established in the knowledge of Christ. He's not been firm in the faith. Any form of false faith will not endure. But true faith always endures. We don't have to worry about, if we're in the faith, if we have true saving faith, we don't have to worry if our faith will endure. It will. God carries us to the end. I want, to, I want to end with just a gospel presentation from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Come with me to Titus chapter 3. Actually, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the start. 
That's, that, that's kind of square one of the gospel of where we're at. That's human nature. And if we read that and we have a hard time identifying with that, and we think, well, Paul, you wrote this, and so you were once foolish and disobedient, and we kind of distance ourselves. You've come a long way, Paul. No, this is human nature, and this is the flesh in each and every one of us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. You know, let me um, add to that in a, uh, from Romans chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If we have a difficult time understanding that this is us, this is human nature, this is an illustration that helped me and maybe it will help you. You ever see the movie Lord of the Rings? I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. Remember the orcs? How vile, nasty, full of anger, full of evil these creatures were. Did you ever feel sorry for them when Gimli's axe took them to the ground? No, we cheered. When you imagine that those orcs filled with anger, hated by others and hating one another, when you imagine those armies of orcs as representing human nature, you're not imagining. You're not imagining. This, has this, this, this passage has a parallel to Ephesians 2 because we've got the but God moment right here. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Hopefully that's tremendously obvious at this point. But according to his own mercy, tremendous mercy in light of, in light of a true understanding of ourselves, amazing grace, right? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Regeneration. That's being born again. This is, what, this is exactly what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. When he says, do not even marvel that I'm telling you you have to be born again. Hello. You think we need washing of being made completely new? We need to, we need to start over. We need to be completely made new. by the washing and renewal of the regeneration that the Holy Spirit does, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Praise God. You want to know what you can put your faith in? Verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. That's what we were just, that, that, that's this message of the gospel that we just went over in the prior verses. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to 
essentially exercise your true faith, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And I'll close with this verse from 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we must agree with Paul, each and every one of us, when he says, Of whom I am the foremost. Guys, this is the great gospel message. If we don't identify with the first part, then how can we understand God's saving grace? Saved from what? So what are we putting our faith in? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ alone. His grace alone, not by works. So that no one can boast. It's all him. He does every step of our salvation. Can you imagine the orcs saving themselves? It's as silly as us thinking we would save ourselves. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that guides and protects our hearts in the truth, that warns us against false ideas of faith so that we may be guarded let us not understand and just point fingers out and where that error is around us. But let us be careful in our own hearts that this not seep into our own understanding. Let us search our hearts now and see where each and every one of us have failed to have this pure faith. God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to save sinners such as me, of whom I am the foremost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.